Hello, this is Matt Hale with Art Monthly on Resonance 104.4 FM. And this programme is based on the April issue of Art Monthly. That's issue number 355. It's April 2012. And I'm joined in the studio today by Chris Townsend, who we have just recently understood is taking up a place as Senior Fellow, Henry Moore Institute from 2012-13. Well done, Chris. Hello. Thanks for coming in again. I think this is your second time on the programme. Am I right about that? Yes, indeed. Thanks for inviting me. No, no, no. It's a great pleasure. And um, it's just you and me here today. And the idea is we'll discuss your feature called On Drawing, which you originally called um, when you sent the uh, text in to us, Don't Touch Me There which you equated to some song, which I pretended I'd yeah, never uh, heard of. I was trying to cheapen the whole tone of the thing by Chrome. It's, um, I think it's the cramps. Somebody somebody out there will probably correct me, but it, <laughs> it, certainly it's an early punk sort of trash yeah, yeah. song. So, although the whole question of touch was fairly important to the whole piece because I was interested in emphasising the way that drawing and indeed writing are intimate physical acts well just holding the pencil itself you mean being a kind of intimate act well the notion of making a mark the notion of expression i think and the fact that drawing and writing um are ways in a sense there's this immediacy of connection between thought and expression there is this line, as you like, that runs from the mind through the body into the, into the surface of inscription. Um, the mark that you make obviously varies, but what I wanted to do was contrast that with very much with the way that not only has writing itself become disembodied to some extent, the way that, you know, as writers now, I guess most writers, not not all necessarily, and my own experience not the case, but most people start and finish with a, with a computer, with a keyboard. And, you know, electronic keyboards don't really hurt. There's no sense of physicality the way there is to a typewriter keyboard. Um, but in the same, actually, in the same way that artists make sketches, writers make sketches too. You know, we have notebooks full of them. Um and we make those marks physically, and we may make them in a hurry, we may might make them to some degree at leisure, but it's a matter of carrying out a study, carrying out an exercise in the way that you're describing in writing, in handwriting, the kind of description of the world that an artist would make with a pencil or charcoal or silver point um, of trying to actually work through one's relationship to the world and describing the object that you're seeing. Do do you describe or do you use the word language in your as a term relating to drawing? I mean do do you see drawing as a language or do you see that as not a language? You see text, you know, words as a language. That's not something you actually brought up in your art, your feature, but it's something that I was just... Oh, I, I would definitely see drawing... I would see... I mean, as far as I'm concerned, all forms of visual art are, are languages. They're not necessarily as rigorously codified as textual rhetoric. There isn't 
an established grammar that says you have to do this. What, in drawing? In drawing, let's say, or in painting. But actually, if you go back to the way in which, certainly from early modern period on, once you have the discovery of perspective, you have the foundation of the workshop system, and you have a kind of system, system of teaching then there is a certain language of this is how you construct a painting, this is how you order objects according to perspective, this is how you actually establish colour relations, even something as simple as the rule of thirds in constructing a landscape. These are elements of, these are elements of a rhetoric, so yes, there is a grammar, um, but it's, it's not codified in the way that, say, an abstract system is like music whose codification, one might add, only rarely emerges at much the same time as the language of drawing. Um, historically? Historically, yes. You know, kind of medieval and Renaissance notation is very, very different from the kind of rigours of inst of contemporary, contemporary musical notation. Um, and even, you know, kind of, even though there's a more established grammar to lexical language... Um, it's certainly the case that historically that's much more flexible than it certainly becomes by the 19th century. So, yeah, there are, there are, there are languages that artists are exploring and working with. Yes. That was probably a digression on my part. But yeah, don't worry, I like digressions. So do I. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, you, so you've made this link between you as a critic writing by hand this piece which, which we've published, in a sense, and, and, and the artist's drawing... Yeah, and and in a way, would you say that the piece is really about um, you re-emphasising the importance of of, of, of how you, this this touch and this 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 compared to say, um, as you said, the keyboard and the and the electronic mm -hmm. production of things. I mean, you're, you're, are you basically making a point? Well, I think I think there are there are a number of things after I'm, that I'm after in the article, but I think yes, that's one of them. One is the kind of question of physicality, the question of... I suppose what I'm interested in, almost as much to say physicality, is the question of agency. Um, and that's something we might want to talk about in terms, for example, when I discussed Don Judd's drawings and his boxes. I'm not going to call them sculptures because Judd, Judd's ghost wouldn't like <coughs> that. Right. Um, but then also the question of tradition, the very fact that... In a sense that you still have the, the artist who draws, the artist who makes a mark of their own, actually is working in a tradition. You know, and that kind of. I think of all the pieces I've written for Art Monthly, this is the one where, and I, you know, I'm, I, can't, I tend to make links fairly commonly between what's happening in contemporary art and, let's say, the traditions of the of modernism of the 19th, late 19th, early 20th century, because in a way that's where my specialism is as an art historian. But this is the one where I've really kind of gone back and I probably talk as much about people like Dura and Giacchino in this. I talk about old masters, if you like, as much as I do about contemporary artists. And I wanted to make that, that emphasise that continuity because I think that is something that passes, as it were, there is a tradition that passes through the body. Um, and it's 
something that a certain aspect of contemporary art, increasingly since 60s conceptualism, has undertaken is, as it were, the evacuation of control over its own rhetoric. That conceptualism is not simply, let's say, about a de-skilling of art, that somebody else can make the work for you. Um, and that might be, in certain cases, the notion of getting somebody else to make the work for you is not about technical competence. It's certainly not about technical competence for somebody like Mahoy Nash when he has his telephone paintings made because he could perfectly well have rendered those himself. Um, but there's a degree to which, for younger contemporary artists, de-skilling is an important issue. You can have everything done for you. All you need is the idea. All you need is this kind of disembodied notion floating around. And it's the only the idea, not the command of rhetoric, that matters. Um, and I think that from a philosophical point of view, let's say crucially, and I think, I think this is a hugely important point about contemporary practice, and practice probably going back to the late 70s, early 80s, when you really start to see this kind of notion of the surrender of rhetorical control with the pictures generation, with people like Cindy Sherman and Richard Prince, in particular with their photographic work, that if you can't actually say what you want to say with the materials and you leave it to somebody else to say it for you, then you run into a serious problem with your work because you just completely surrendered your own agency. You just reduced... In a sense, it's, it's funny because I suspect for a lot of young artists emerging from art schools, the way that the critical theory is taught, there's an emphasis, is almost an anti-Cartesian tradition that continues um, through contemporary critical theory is a legacy of the work of people like Lacan, um, let's say, or Derrida to a lesser extent, but certainly kind of structuralist and post-structuralist thought. So this notion of Cartesian subjectivity is the great bête noire, if you like, for most thinkers, most young artists. But funnily enough, with conceptualism, that's precisely what you end up with. You end up with pure disembodied mind. Can you explain a little bit more about this Cartesian subjectivity? Just Whoa. <laughs> and that's a big one, but and yeah. even just even using the word subjectivity, just to be really okay. as clear as you could. Just well, okay, so can what subjectivity? That is. I wouldn't use okay. The, the famous the famous Cartesian quote is "cogito ergo sum." I think, therefore, I am. Um, actually, that's a complete misreading of Descartes, and I did contemplate actually dealing with a very interesting piece by Descartes where he talks about writing and physicality and mind. Um, within this piece, but that might have been pushing it a bit far. Um, in terms of subjectivity, the subjectivity is, in a sense, to be a subject is that which can, I can say I, simply as that, in, in Hegelian terms. I mean, it's that's a... It's, in a sense, it's how long have you got, Matt? We've, well, no, we haven't got we any... We want to run just, the two-and-a-half-day seminar No, no, it's just you, you wrote in here, writing and drawing are expressions of subjectivity. Yes. Because you wrote that, yeah. and then there's this other this idea I got from the people that, that, that you were implying that the conceptual work did, didn't deal with that. 
I would say that's I'd say that's very and, much the and case. And what, you don't have yeah. to prove that, but that's your point yeah. that you're yeah. making. Well, way, I, the point I would make is, in a sense, subjectivity is that which can set, which can articulate its own identity. Now, I think the moment that you get to the point where somebody else is carrying out the process for you, you are not straightforwardly articulating that identity. Now, that may or may not be a good thing, and certainly in the case of the kind of work of people like Doug Crimp around the pictures generation, around Sherman and Prince in the early 80s, subjectivity was perceived to be, quote, a bad thing. Um, or certainly problematic in the way that it was thought of because yeah. it equated to certain kind of notions of autonomous agency in the world and we all know we are not really autonomous agents. Except we are to some extent because we do have a historical relation. If we don't have that, then we might as well just pack up and give up now and you know, um, stop thinking about changing anything. That is where it gets... It, yeah. does, I mean, it does get complicated. I, I understand, and we, we can't. We're trying to cover some of the other things you covered as well. You, I was very interested in you use. I, mean, I don't know if it fits in well here, but you use the word erasure fairly near the beginning of the yes. piece. And, yeah. And would you say a little bit about that? Yeah, in the sense that actually, writing's not writing and writing and drawing are not. I think simply about the making of the mark they're also about the removal of the mark they're about a degree to which you edit they're a degree to which you revise um improve or pare down and because you mentioned beckett didn't you yeah i mean well i i endlessly repeat this that a good day at the office for beckett was the late beckett not so much i suspect beckett pre mid 50s but a good day for the office at the office for Beckett was when he crossed out when he when he erased more words than he wrote. Yeah, because I, I also just grabbing from the internet, I found a sentence saying the erasure. He, Beckett was also involved with the erasure of autobiography, so self erasure. So he would write something, and then it might be based on his own experience, but he'd be trying to erase himself mm -hmm. by autobiographically speaking from the text, which I yeah. thought was another interesting form of erasure. Well, which you might not yeah. have been thinking of. I, don't I know. wasn't particularly thinking of that. But you're, thinking more, is, you're thinking more literally. I'm thinking kind of literally, but I, I, I like the notion of that. But then I think there's a degree to which most, certainly most novelists, most writers of fiction do that in that they will work through something that at least has some connection to, ex, to their own experience and then, as it were, create lacunae within that into which other people can fit. That's where identification comes from in the work of fiction, I guess. Now we're a long way off topic. We are. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing all right. You, you, you do go on to, to, to mention performance as well, and, and the act of the drawing is actually in itself a, a form of performance, Yeah, um, which you then I expand I, quite, yeah, quite broadly, got, which is lovely. One of the things that really impelled me to write this piece was... A really lovely show in Berlin at Booth Maggers, which was focused around Tony McCall's work. And McCall, to some extent, is one of the great practitioners of disembodied drawing. If you think of a piece like Line Describing a Cone, which I do talk about in, in the feature. But McCall also did process and does process drawing, so he will actually 
undertake drawings that are made in a certain period of time before an audience in the gallery. So he's, he, has, he is a master of kind of process, of process drawing, which fits clearly into the kind of post-minimal roots that he belonged to. Um, and I think most of the artists in that little Berlin show really emphasise the degree to which there is a notion of physicality and the way in which drawing could come out of a performative tradition. So the work of somebody like Dorothea Rockburn, for example, who um, Rockburn's background is, you know, she studied at Black Mountain College in the early 1950s down in the Carolinas with John Cage. And her background is as much a, as a dancer as it is as an artist. So there's physicality, and she kind of she actually talks about this that drawing 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 is my bones. Yes, she says drawing is a fundamental is as fundamental to my art making as my skeleton is to my body. Drawing is the bones of my thought. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and you know, Rockburn's not necessarily working in a very conventional way in terms of drawing, but these kind of very abstract pieces that she produces nonetheless belong to that tradition and if you like this is the other strand to 60s to, if 60s conceptualism disembodies drawing and as it were evacuates physicality from the making of the artwork performance art sometimes dangerously if you look at the kind of um, Viennese action kunst for example kind of puts physicality back in sometimes to you know absolute over you know kind of extreme over the top yeah um but <clears throat> it's from that tradition as well that you kind of get the drawing of somebody like Gordon Matter Clark and Matter Clark is at once a sculptor but in a sense he's no more a sculptor than Don Judd wants to be a sculptor there is a degree to which Matter Clark is making drawings with light in buildings he just happens to use a chainsaw as one of his principal instruments rather than charcoal. To make the hole for the light yeah, to come exactly, through. Exactly, to make the slit. So in piece like Conical Intersect or in Day's End, um, you know, these, these, are piece, these are drawings conducted on the grand scale. And there are other examples. There are smaller scales. Somebody, the work of somebody like Sol Lewitt, for example, Lewitt's wall drawings, where he would cover a whole wall with these incredibly detailed grids would be another kind of example of that, of the way in which drawing becomes architectural, process-based, physical. So I was interested in the way that kind of... Which is not... A, and I don't see that as a discontinuity from what's happening with somebody like Giacchino or with, you know, the kind of the great... The, the traditional artists working in charcoal or pencil or crayon or chalk right the way up into the early 20th century. I think actually that there is a continuity in finding materials like that and Rockburn would certainly see herself and has said as much to see herself in that tradition. I, I was looking at Turner on the weekend just as it happened and I, and this Matter Clark idea that you, you were, he was like, well I mentioned this Anthony McCall cone of light mm -hmm. and then this link you made you said something in your piece about how matter clark's piece was perhaps a a kind of a riposte, a riposte to, that. to yes. that piece in, in yep. that he was cutting a cone into 
into the building in the in the one in Paris that he yes, did, wasn't in, he? Yes, in the last in um, the great piece he did when the on the site that was being demolished to yes. make way for the Pompidou with Conical yeah. Intersect. Yeah, um, that. I mean, people Mac- may not made the Anthony Mac- yeah. McCall piece. McCall McCall's line describing a cone is an extraordinary and beautiful piece, and it was kind of. It was rediscovered, I think, in a way by Chrissy Isles. Chrissy Isles did a wonderful show at the Whitney in 2001, 2002, called Into the Light, which was a really great rediscovery of artist filmmaking from the 60s and 70s. And McCall's work was certainly not much known about by then. Line Describing a Cone starts with a very single, with a single point of light. It's, 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 It's a film. Yeah, so it's coming out of a projector. So this is a beam of light that comes out of a projector. And over 30 minutes, that single beam gradually develops through, a, as it were, through a frame-by-frame drawing on the film um, to create a circle. And, of course, what you get is a circle on the wall and what you get is a cone of light... In the room. ...in the room that, given the right degree of dust and smoke in the atmosphere, or more commonly these days, kind of hazing... Um, is almost haptic. Since, I think, since... You mean almost, asked, by that, you yeah, mean almost touchable. You can almost touch it. Some people do. You will see people endlessly. And this, you know, line describing a cone has probably not been out of a museum since Chrissy Isles showed it in 2001. I think I've seen it once a year, every year since. Um, not necessarily by choice, just simply you walk into a museum and someone's got a show with it in. But you will always see people kind of trying to touch it as if it's a, as if this light had suddenly become a physical surface, and that's the great kind of that's the great trick, as it were, of um, line describing a cone. So Matter Clark's, but in a is sense, different. because it's on film, it's endlessly replicable, and in a sense, it's disembodied. You don't have to be there. All it takes is McCall to just sit there going through frame by frame by frame of 16 mil, making the necessary fractional drawings on each frame in order to create, eventually, this closed circle. Whereas a matter clock drawing, in a sense, you have to be there because almost making the drawing is actually destroys the work. None of... Although people claim that Office Baroque in Antwerp, for example, could perhaps have been preserved. This was Matter Clark's last piece before he died in 78. Um, although that could perhaps have been preserved. Most of Matter Clark's cuts actually destroyed the buildings that they were, that is in a sense, that they took place in. So they were drawings with light that actually undermined themselves. The only way they could in fact be preserved was by photograph and by film as a document but the work itself physically you had to be there to see it. And And, and and the building was destroyed. And indeed to make it. And yeah, none of of Matter Clark's none of the sites of Matter Clark's cuts exist. No. He did photograph them very carefully himself. Oh and indeed most of them were films. Some some, some of the photographs actually appear to me to look like consciously, carefully taken photographs as if they were new works. Because there's one, which I think is in the magazine, which we notice it's actually turned sideways as a photograph. And we checked it because, it, in actual fact, the photograph is of Conical Intersect, but it's by Gordon Matter Clark. And if you turn it sideways, it, it must have been like that when he took it. Yes. But actually he displayed it. So it's portrait as he took it. 
and for it to be correct gravitationally. But, but when he yeah. displayed it, he displayed it at a landscape, which I thought was quite interesting because it does, to me, prove that he that that's an artwork mm-hmm. rather than because if it wasn't, why would he? made that why would he make that twist physical choice yeah do you know what I mean? which i thought was a lovely extra yeah. addition yeah. because it comes out that's how the work works in a way mm-hmm. kind of you know it's twisting your perceptions of a of a reality in a oh, building and, and then they did it with the photograph yeah. Yeah. so yeah. that was a yeah. we actually had to check we got it right i mean i hope yes. we have we did, we did <laughs> check carefully but but the idea that the the cone this connection between matter clark's cone because that is a cone conical insect is a well, cone the conical insect is two cones it's two cones two cut, cones, into, cut a building, into a building isn't it? at 90 degrees but that is like a cone as in anthony mccall yes so there is yeah. a link in just yes. a shape mccall, mccall indeed said mccall indeed has said that line describing a cone was inspired by him witnessing matter clark's production of another earlier cut day's end um on the west side piers in manhattan um so that you know that there was a relationship, certainly. So they had a relationship two. going. Yeah, yeah. Although Matt, although McCall had already been kind of doing work with yes. light yes. in any case in Britain in the early seventies before then. Yeah. Because um, I was also interested in Matt, Matt Clark, the fact that he actually studied architecture, Matt Clark, didn't he? Which, yes. which is which is yes. very. Um, yeah. I mean, you, I didn't realise that. I, I just thought he was sort of you know. You could just assume he was a devastator of architecture, but <laughs> it's completely, well, completely he, opposite. He, he, he's an archi- Yeah, he studies architecture, but yes, you know, the group he's working with is an architecture and is a very deliberate conflation of anarchy and architecture. Yeah, which is a lovely word. Um, but then again, what you're also getting with those with that kind of notion of drawing on the city space is a very political critique, certainly for for Matter Clark and for Richard Nonus, his chief partner in crime, as it were, within architecture, than the idea of actually challenging the way in which cities were ordered and imagined is a significant, let's say, political gesture, or it's a historical critique in Marxist kind of in, history, in materialist terms. Um, and that really, I think, we can contrast quite strongly with the work of somebody like Donald Judd, who only f- well, at much the same time, by the time by the mid seventies, at the same time as Matt Clark is really getting his toolbox fired up, um, Judd has completely turned over the making of his objects to external fabricators. Now, talk about the drawing, because you mentioned yeah, the drawings yeah. that and he does to give them. This is kind of an interesting... There is an interesting... I think, you know, Judd's work doesn't necessarily... Judd's, Judd's objects don't necessarily do a lot for me, but I think there's an interesting... There's a wonderful tension at work in the drawings, because the drawings take two forms. On the one hand, are the instructions to fabricators, which... Before the show at Spruce Magazine London, people had not really seen, I suspect. And the drawings to fabricators are really attempts to get away with telling the fabricator as little as possible. In a sense, not making... And he does not make detailed technical drawings. He makes sketches with instructions about materials, final finish, and everything else. And he leaves it to the fabricator to work out the best technical solutions to make the object. Not necessarily to make it into the most finished, perfect artwork, but actually, in a sense, the optimum technical solution. The 
interesting thing with that comes in. So Dud, Judd is there kind of completely surrendered. He want, Judd wants to get notions of making out of, out of the... and being an artist in terms of making work out of his system there. The problem is then for him, and this wonderful tension comes back in, how the hell do I document these, these works? Do I even want to document these works? Well, yes, I do. Something drives me to do it. Something, as it were, drives, it to, drives me to make the mine to actually make some kind of announcement of subjectivity. At the same time, I don't want to photograph them because that's too much like objective truth, which is a big problem. And I don't want to make artistic drawings in perspective and anything else. So what you get, as a consequence, are a series of really quite beautiful technical drawings, the kind of things I suspect these fabricators would have died for, but often rendered not as perspective. He will, for example, make isometric drawings. He will display considerable technical drawing skill after the, after the object has been made, so that it's almost he has to turn back to a form of drawing to announce his physicality, even though he doesn't want to. After. After. After the event. <laughs> Not in advance. Because I know you also mentioned that there's a lot of humanity, in, as it were, on the drawings because, of course, they're handled by the men who... who yes. He, the, he, the, some of his early, some yeah, of the drawings the he does before... The ones that have been in the workshop are wonderfully physical. Yes, because they've so they've become been, humanity. Yeah, so, they've been worked over by the guys who are yeah, actually not cutting him. and bending steel. But yeah. it's, it's a complicated... Time. It's a mix where everything comes together, isn't it? There's different um, approaches of, of rejoining. Yeah, yeah. Listen, we've come to the end of our half an hour, and... Um, I hope that that's encouraged you guys who are listening to read the article, read the feature by Chris, which I say is in um, the April issue of Art Monthly, issue 355. That's the... Do come and listen to us again. Uh, by the way, if you do want to subscribe to Art Monthly, if you just email subs at artmonthly.co.uk and write resonance in your email, a resonance offer, you get 30% discount. Chris, thank you so much for coming. I'm sorry to do that little intervention at the end That's for the okay. subscription, no but problem. it means people might actually read your, read your feature. I which hope is, so. Which <laughs> has got much more in it than we've said. Chris has been very good, but there, he, he has written more and more complicated ideas within the piece as well. So thank you very much for listening, and thanks very much for coming in again. Thank Chris Townsend. Much, thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>